For the first time in the history of this church, we're going to take a long historical book from the Old Testament. We've done prophetic books, we've done wisdom literature in the Old Testament, uh, we've done some short historical books like Ruth, uh, but uh, we've never taken a long one, and we're going to keep a pretty good pace to try to keep uh, the, the flow of the story, but today we're beginning the, the book of Exodus. And while we shouldn't rank books of the Bible in terms of their importance, there are some books whose content is essential for understanding the entirety of the message of the Bible. You can think of Genesis. Without the book of Genesis, we would not have the story of creation. We wouldn't have the story of the first sin, God's response to that sin. We wouldn't have God's covenant with Abraham. We wouldn't have his call, uh, his son Isaac, Jacob, his sons. We would be missing essential material to understand the rest of the Bible. The book of Exodus is like that as well, because in the book of Exodus, we have the salvation story of God's people. Just as we look back to the Gospels and the story of Jesus, they looked back to the Exodus. That was their salvation story. They're coming out of Egypt. We also have in Exodus the revelation of God's name. We have the story of Israel's greatest prophet and leader, Moses. We have the story of the Passover. We have the Ten Commandments that are given. We have the institution of the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices, which were all a central part of Israel's worship. So Exodus is an essential book to understand not only the Old Testament, but also the New. It's not only an essential book for the identity of Jewish people, but also for Christians, because the same God who revealed himself to Moses is our God. Uh, the, uh, the pattern that Moses set as the great prophet and leader was the pattern for Jesus, because one like Moses would arise, and that is Jesus. The Ten Commandments, uh, at least nine of them, are repeated in the New Testament, and so they are reiterated in the New Testament. And the whole tabernacle and priesthood and sacrifices, these are all in preparation for their fulfillment, which is in Jesus. So this book is our book, too. This story is our story, too. But we connect with it not only through history, but we connect also through experience. Experience. Because it starts with human suffering. It starts with the story of human suffering, something we all experience, and something that makes sense only in the light of God's revealed plan. And that's what we'll see today as I read Exodus chapter 1. It's on page 50 in the Bibles that are available to you. Exodus chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Sebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, 
They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the fields. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our, and our deliverer. Amen. One of the great things about being a pastor is that I get to be with people on important occasions, on births and on birthdays and at weddings and at graduations and at anniversaries. And these are very, very happy occasions. One of the most difficult things about being a pastor is that I get to be with them on special occasions of another sort, on miscarriages, during deaths, at bereavement, uh, at funerals, when people are grieving, when they're sick, and when they're dying. In the first set of special occasions, it's easy for me, and it's easy for everyone to say, God is good, and he's working out his plan. In the second set of occasions, it's a lot harder to say, God is good, and he's working out his plans. And yet, it's still true, and it's still necessary to make that declaration, and it's probably a greater statement of faith and a greater declaration of faith to declare that God is good and that he's working out his plan in that second set of difficult situations. Now, as we open this book of Exodus and we start, we find the situation of the Israelites in Egypt. And this declaration of faith for them would have been very, very difficult because we opened with great suffering and that suffering continues in some ways throughout the rest of the book. But at the same time, we see God's fingerprints all over this plan. And so we see that God is working out his plan through human suffering and even against human opposition. But it was hard for them, if we put ourselves in their sandals, it was hard for them to see that. Even though there was evidence all through it, they could see it much more clearly after the fact, looking back on what God had done. Now we begin this book, and the first word of this book is actually not in our translations. The first word of this, this book is, and, and. So the book starts, and 
these are the names of the sons of Israel. And the fact that it starts with a conjunction and means that it's a continuation of what just happened in Genesis. And in fact, what we have here is that verses 1 to 5 summarize Genesis chapters 37 to 50. It presents to us the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And then it names 11 of them. And then it says Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, if we haven't read Genesis, we'd say, who are these people? And how did they get to Egypt? Why did they get to Egypt? And what was Joseph already doing in Egypt? Well, let me summarize that. God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia, and he called him to go to this land of Canaan, but he didn't say where it was at first. And eventually, after some delay, Abraham got to Canaan, but he didn't possess any of it. God also promised this old man with his old wife that they would have a son, and that out of that son, they would have a nation, that they would possess the land, and that they would become a great nation, and that they would bless all the nations in their offspring, and that whoever cursed him would be cursed, and whoever blessed him would be blessed. And so this was the promise to Abraham, and then we have 25 years of waiting for this son, and finally the son is born when Abraham's 100 years old and his wife is 90, and they call him Laughter. Isaac, they call him Laughter, because it was pretty funny that this old man and this old woman had a son, and it was a source of joy. And then Isaac has a son, and he's called Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter, and that's the names we have here. But what in the world were they doing in Egypt? Well, they were jealous of one of the younger sons, Joseph, and so they sold him as a slave into Egypt. He ended up, through a series of trials, being what would be something like the prime minister of Egypt. And through his foresight and his amazing administration, during a famine of seven years, he saved the people of Egypt, but not only the people of Egypt, but people from other countries went to Egypt looking for food. And among those who went were these 11 brothers looking for food. And when they found that there was food there and that Joseph was still alive, he said, come on down. And he brought all of his family there. That's why Joseph was in Egypt. And that's why all these others were in Egypt. But then we read in verse 6, Joseph died. That's how Genesis ends in chapter 50. Joseph died, and all that generation died. All of those brothers died. But then we have in verses 6 and 7, we have a summary of 400 years. What happened during those 400 years that they were down in Egypt after that first generation died off? Well, we have that in verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, if we have read the beginning chapters of Genesis, some alarms should sound in our head. We should say, I have heard those words before. Let me read them again. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and ex grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. If you go back to the creation account, when God made Adam and Eve, what did he say to them? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then after the earth was destroyed and God started again with Noah, he said to Noah, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And to Jacob in chapter 35 of Genesis, he says, be fruitful and multiply. 
And so this is a repeated refrain. These words all come from the first chapters of Genesis, and then throughout Genesis we find them repeated. What's, what's the author of Exodus? What is Moses doing here? He's saying, do you remember when God started everything? He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember God when God restarted everything with Noah? He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember when he started again with Jacob to build this nation? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Guess what God's doing now? Guess what God did during this time in Exodus? It was another restart. It was another restart with humanity and with his relationship with humanity. He was about to do something new. And it was also a fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. God said to Abraham, this old man with no offspring, he said, I will make your descendants like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. They can't be counted. Well, guess what happened during these 400 years in Egypt? His, his descendants became a vast people that were filling the earth. Now, in the midst of that, that all sounds very positive, doesn't it? Very positive. But then we have the problematic introduced in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, when it says he didn't know Joseph, it doesn't just mean that he didn't know him personally. This is generations later. Of course, he didn't know him personally. But it means he didn't know about Joseph. He didn't know what Joseph had done. He didn't know that Joseph was, was the savior of the nation. He didn't understand the importance of this alien people in his midst. And it's interesting that during this time, it's hard to figure out exactly the, the time frame in which this all happened. But during this time, there was a new dynasty that started in Egypt. So it may not have been simply a new king, also called Pharaoh, but it may have been a new dynasty. Around this time, they forced out a foreign dynasty, and the locals established a new dynasty. So there may have been going on here with this, this new dynasty, a local dynasty, a national dynasty, a nationalistic dynasty, sort of a, a hatred of foreigners and a fear of foreigners and, and an immigrant, because they had just gotten out the, the foreign rulers among them. And so we see that this, this new ruler, he looks like he's a, a bit paranoid, uh, especially regarding immigrants, because there is no indication that the Israelites were any threat to Egypt, that they had not done anything wrong. But he invented this, this, this scenario in his mind. He said, well, what if, what if, we have all these people here. What if war breaks out? And what if they join the other side? And what if they fight against us? And then what if they escape from the land? So he invented this, this scenario, and then by causing himself to be afraid of it and his people to be afraid of it, he demonized these, these foreigners, these, these Israelites, these Hebrews. And notice something interesting, and it looks like this is what the author is doing here. What is his, his final fear? What if they escape from the land? That should be a sticky note in our minds. What if they escape from the land? Well, that's exactly what is eventually going to happen. So, so Pharaoh's greatest fear is exactly what we'll find happen in this book. Now, uh, his solution, his solution to the high birth rate of the Hebrews was to subject them to hard labor, to slavery. It's not apparent why he did that. Um, of course, not all 
policies that politicians institute are effective or even reasonable. This one doesn't seem reasonable. How is making them work hard going to keep them from reproducing? Maybe a little bit. Maybe if the man died when they were working hard or too tired when they get home at night or something, but there's no, no real clear reason why this would affect the birth rate of the Israelites. And in fact, if we read in verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And so the Egyptians were in dread of them. And so what did they do? They doubled down on a failed policy. You ever seen that happen before? In the history of politics, well, they doubled down. They made, verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, there's something fascinating here. There may be an allusion here to an event that took place in Genesis uh, chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel. There are a couple of words here that are really interesting. In, uh, in verse, let's see, in verse 10, Pharaoh says, come, let us. Well, that's how the story of the Tower of Babel starts. Come, let us. And the, the people were saying, come, let us build this tower. And they also built the tower with what was apparently new technology. Instead of using stones, they used mortar and brick. So look at verse 14. They made their lives bitter with hard service in what? Mortar and brick. They were still using this, this same technology. So it may be that this is an illusion here, and if, if so, it's fascinating, to an earlier failed policy. Because the policy during, during the time of the Tower of Babel was, let's build a tower to get up to God. And then it's kind of humorous. It said God went down to see their tower. It was so high that God had to go down to see their tower. So it's kind of mocking this, this failed human effort to, to reach up to God. Well, if that illusion is here, it looks like it's, it's, it's gesturing at, well, this is another failed human effort. Come let us. Come let us build with bricks and mortar. And so when they saw that that, that first policy failed, uh, finally he came up with another policy much more ruthless. He wanted to institute male infanticide, but he wanted to do it privately. He wanted to kill off the, the baby boys. And that's in verse 15. And what he did is he called the Hebrew midwives. And it's not clear if these were actually Hebrew midwives or Egyptian midwives for the Hebrews. But however it was, these were the ones that served the, the, the women, the Hebrew women who were going to give birth. And it's interesting that it mentions only two of them. There must have been many more of that. Uh, but it mentions only two, and it gives us their names. And it gives us their names, so that's fascinating. You really personalize it here. And he takes them aside privately and says, okay, when, when you see the babies born... If it's a boy, then kill it. If it's a girl, then let it live. And uh, this is this is a policy that, um, that many rulers have followed throughout the centuries. And in fact, around the world today, there are those who are practicing this policy. Kill the males and keep the females. And often abuse the females, but kill the males and keep the females. And that's that's exactly what this policy was, but it was still a private policy. He was trying to, to keep it from getting out too publicly. He recruited the Hebrew midwives to do the dirty work 
for him. Now, we read here a contrast. We read that the people were afraid of the Israelites. And then we read that the midwives feared God. So the Egyptians feared the Israelites. These midwives feared God. And they didn't do what the king of Egypt commanded them to do. And so he called them in. Because he heard that his policy wasn't working. He called them in. He said, why are you letting the male children live? And then they give a very astute answer that seems to convince him. And uh, it, it was either a, a flat-out lie, or it was a half-truth, or it maybe was the truth. But they said, well, the Hebrew women, you know about those Hebrew women. These are the Hebrew women that are being so fruitful and multiplying. They're not like your Egyptian women. Uh, they're able to give birth without the midwife helping them. No, that was probably true in some cases. And so it may be a half-truth. Uh, or it may be that they were just lying, but however that might be, he was convinced. And so um, he institutes another policy. But there is this interesting aside. Uh, so God dealt with the midwives, dealt with the midwives uh, graciously. The people, the first result was, verse 20, here we have it again. What happened with the people? They multiplied and grew very strong. Another failed policy. And because, verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So he gave them, they were protecting other families, appropriate, they get their own families. And so then we have the final verses of this chapter. Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now it's not private now it's not uh, just a couple people doing his dirty work. He is establishing a universal policy of male Hebrew infanticide. Kill all the males. And that sets us up for chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, we are going to read about a male Hebrew who was born under this policy. And his name was Moses. And to find out what happened you should probably come back next week. Or you can just go ahead and read chapter 2. And we'll find out what God did in the midst of this, this policy. But for now, we can observe that God was restarting his relationship with humanity. Not only with Israel, but with humanity. And the way he was doing it was by fulfilling his promises to Abraham to make his descendants exceedingly numerous. However, God's plan would involve a couple of things. It would involve great human suffering, and it would involve much human opposition. This pattern of God fulfilling his plan through human suffering, and in spite of human opposition, is a pattern that we see repeated through scripture over and over, and most notably, when we get to the New Testament, we find it repeated very dramatically, in the death of Jesus Christ. And there is a, a fascinating couple of verses in Acts, chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. It talks about human opposition, it talks about human suffering, and it talks about the triumph of God's plan. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you catch that? Verse 27, it says, why did Jesus die? Jesus died because of the conspiracy of, of Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. That's why Jesus died, because of this human opposition. That's why he suffered. And then in verse 28, it says, why did Jesus die? Because God had predestined before the ages that his son would be the redeemer of his own and that his son would give his life in dying and then rising from the dead. Why did Jesus die? Because of human opposition. Why did Jesus die? Because of God's plan. And so God fulfilled his plan in Jesus through the suffering of his son and through the opposition and in spite of the opposition. We see that pattern once again in the, in the history of the church. Very early on, there was opposition. There was a man named Saul of Tarsus, and he approved of the execution of of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And then in verse 3 of chapter 8 of, of Acts, it says, but Saul was ravaging the church. Much human suffering, much human opposition, ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then the next verse says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Went about preaching the word. How did that happen? Well, it happened through human opposition and it happened through human suffering. God fulfilled his plan in getting his word out to the nations and eventually out to us. Now that's maybe kind of general. God fulfills his plan in spite of human opposition and through human suffering. Uh, but when we think about the Israelites suffered, well, many individual Israelites suffered unspeakable harm. Uh, when we talk about, well, Jesus suffered, well, Jesus suffered individually the most most horrifying of deaths, and beyond that, the, the wrath of God that he bore for his people. When we speak of the suffering of the church, we're talking about humans, Christians, brothers and sisters who, who suffer very, very severely. And, and so this isn't just a general thing. This is, this is very specific. Individual Hebrews suffer. Individual Christians suffer. And that's where we can enter into this story as well, because we suffer as well. And we experience opposition for being Christians, not the opposition that, that many Christians experience around the world today or throughout, throughout history, but we, we also suffer as Christians. And how, how do we handle that? When, when we suffer as believers, what, what do we say? What can we say? Can we declare God is good and he is working out his plan? I just want to point out, we're just getting started in Exodus, but it would have been very, very difficult for the people in chapter 1 to see what God was doing. What did they have to do? They had to live out the rest of the story, and they didn't have any sort of indication of how that story was going to play out yet. They had to live it out day by day, even in the midst of their suffering and sorrow and loss. In other words, they had to walk by faith. And so do we. We don't have a, a preview of coming attractions. We don't know how the suffering in our lives is, is going to end. We don't know how it's going to play out. But if we are believers in Christ, then what do we need to do? We, we need to keep going. 
We need to see how this plays out. And along the way, as hard as it might be, to keep declaring God is good and he's working out his plan. In other words, we need to walk by faith. Let's pray. Our God, we read these stories that are inspiring. And yet, when we think about what those Hebrews suffered, it was it was terrible. And I'm sure that there was great anguish and great sorrow and great pain in every household of the Hebrews. And we read about Christ's suffering and it's beyond our comprehension. We read about the ravaging of the church and we read about Christian suffering around the globe today and throughout history. And we, we realize that, that that suffering is, is, is beyond our comprehension. And then we add to that our sufferings, which, which may be great or may be slight in comparison to all that suffering, but for us, they're great. All of our suffering is great, oh God, and it's hard to bear. And so we pray that, that we who share in this human experience, and not only human experience, but especially this experience of believers in the one true God, as we share in this suffering, we pray that you enable us to remember the one who suffered for us and to see in him how you work out your perfect plan through human suffering. And we pray that you would enable us to continue to declare that you are good and you're working out your plan and to walk by faith in Jesus. We pray in his name.